Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle, and as you listen to this, I am off somewhere very far away and hopefully warm on my holliers. And I hope some of you are going to have a bit of a break as well. But before I went off on my travels, I made sure to record this episode. And uh, later on, you're going to be hearing my conversation with Richie Sadlier, the football pundit um, turned psychotherapist who's doing something really important. He's talking to teenage boys about sex and relationships in a way that I think is quite groundbreaking. There's lots different in today's landscape that wasn't an issue when I was a teenager. There are all the obvious ones, phones, camera phones, dating apps, sexting, online porn. So I just figured it'd be worthwhile putting a lot of it in a book because this is a tricky area to talk about, particularly with teenagers who are embarrassed by everything, but really curious and, and eager to learn about everything. That was Richie Sadlier there and there's more from him later in the episode. But first, I was lucky a few months ago to get a proof copy of a book by 26-year-old Catherine Prasivka. The book is called None of This is Serious. It was clever, zeitgeisty, thought-provoking and funny. All of my favourite things. Now, you've probably heard a lot about it by now because it went to the number one in the bestseller list and I reckon it's going to be one of the literary hits of this year. The book's central character is Sophie. She is a vulnerable young woman at the end of her student years and she's feeling left behind as all her friends start to go their separate ways. She's overshadowed by her best friend, Grace, She's been in love with Finn for as long as she's known him. And she's about to meet Rory, who's suddenly very available to her online. Um, she also has a twin sister called Hannah, who is horrendous and, you know, difficult family relations. Early on in the book, though, when Sophie and her friends are all at a party, a violet crack appears in the sky. And it's this crack, which is really mysterious and nobody knows why it's there. And it's the way that people respond to it in the book. It's such a clever, clever device. There are loads of themes explored in this book. Climate change, relationships, body image, sexuality, and most of all, the precarious, anxiety-ridden lives of some 20-somethings today. 20-somethings very often who are taking refuge in an online world. I really enjoyed talking to her about the book and I think you're going to really enjoy this. The book is called None of This is Serious, but as you will hear, some of this is very serious indeed. Catherine, I read your book a while ago and I got a proof of it and I absolutely loved it so much. And the main thing I think that I just gripped me from the beginning was the crack. And I just thought it'd be great if you could explain to our listeners about the crack and when that came to you as an idea and, and did that kind of centre the whole book? Because for me, that's what elevates it into something else. Tell us about the crack. Uh, a big question <laughs> to start off with. <laughs> um, it was actually the first thing that I thought of that I wanted to include in the book. Um, when I thought of it, the book had a different shape, like it had different themes. Um, it was going to be more science fiction, I think. Um the idea came out of my master's, which was in fantasy literature at the University of Glasgow, which was amazing. Like, it was just so interesting to learn more about fantasy. I feel like it's not really analysed uh, or talked about or maybe even utilised to its full potential because people just think, oh, that's about, you know, elves or witches or whatever. Um, so I had the idea. and I knew I always wanted to put it in and to have it be a very kind of uh, grounded story at the same time. So a big crack of light, purple light opens in the sky. And then I want it to just be about, you know, a regular girl experiencing a kind of mildly science fiction story. But then I found out that like, it's quite difficult to incorporate science fiction into the real because you end up with, um, you know, I had a character maybe come back from the dead and I was like, oh God, the amount of paperwork that that character would have to do. Like, I mean, she's been dead for four years. What am I, what's going to happen? Um, so I ended up, 
writing the crack out for the first hundred pages and then writing it back in so that I could kind of make sure it had just like a normal story at its heart um, because the crack is there for you know it was, it was my idea to kind of represent the anxiety of being alive today of these kind of like seemingly constant threats that exist that you see on the news that happen that you see on Twitter and then the next week they're kind of gone or they're not gone but they're out of the news cycle and you're just kind of used to them and then they appear in like a a meme or something like that um so yeah that is hanging over the whole story and it was also kind of I wanted to bring these kind of global events down to like a personal level where I kind of feel like we end up experiencing them so it was always there I was felt really strongly about it but at the start I didn't quite know what I was doing I think no it works really well as a device you wrote this book during the pandemic and I think for me as well, I read it sort of when we were, I think we were still in lockdown when I got the proof. And it just feels so like the crack could be the pandemic. The crack could be anything, really. D- was it was it easier to write when there was actually something really weird going on? <laughs> it was very, very strange to write, I think, you know, because I always had the idea. And I think what's important to me about the idea is it's not this is a catastrophe happening. It is more about how that catastrophe is represented on social media and we experience a catastrophe. So it doesn't have to be as pinned down and specific. Uh, But yeah, I had the idea before the pandemic. I started writing it. And then as the pandemic happened, a lot more ideas kind of appeared to me that I would never even have thought of, you know? So there's a bit in the final printed copy about, you know, the Taoiseach giving an address on the news, just mentioned in passing. And, you know, six months before the pandemic, I would not have imagined that. I couldn't have even thought of that happening. Um, So it was kind of informative. And I mean, the pandemic is all over the novel as much as I could try to deny it. I think every piece of art (laughs) made during the pandemic is about the pandemic. Like, you know, we're all kind of struggling to deal with it. But I did have to stop myself and go, okay, you know, you're writing a work of fiction. You don't have to mirror everything exactly. Like, you don't have to write in something about the government's, you know, printed out, you know, five point plan in response to the to the crack in the sky because it's not a one to one analogy. Um, but yeah, it was very, very strange. But I do think that kind of feeling of just dread and constant anxiety <laughs> um, that definitely informed by the pandemic as well. So yeah. there's there's loads of different themes I and mean, lots going on in the book. Um, one of them, I suppose, a key one is the kind of way uh, internet life and online life bleeds into real life and the kind of uh, inability of the main character, I suppose, Sophie, to separate that or to sort of feel like she's alive. She's very much an observer in everything. She's she doesn't seem to be really taking part. I mean, I I really liked her actually. Interestingly, as a character, even though she's quite sad a lot of the time, <laughs> but she's also quite funny, and her observations about the world around her are just so spot on. Um, so w- why did you want to explore that? I mean, is that something that you yourself and your peers and is that something you see a lot, uh, that problem of not being able to distance yourself from the online? Um, yeah, I think definitely. And that was another thing at the start when I was writing the book. You know, I started writing it when I was like 23 and I was like, well, I'm not going to write the best book of all time, but I am going to write a book and hopefully a book that I uniquely could write. And I think that there's something kind of starting in and around my generation. You know, I grew up not entirely on social media, but it kind of happened when I was about 13 or 14. And I have been observing it, watching it, learning from it for the last, you know, 13, 14 years of my life. And I wanted to include that because I think often when I see social media in media, like in books or in, you know, movies or TV, it kind of either it functions exactly like a regular conversation does or it takes over the entire narrative and it's about social media. I wanted to represent a story that happened on social media, but it's not necessarily, you know, the it doesn't matter whether or not it is on social media, but the way that social media changes the communication, I think, adds to the story. Um, because, yeah, I think even though social media is intangible, like, you know, it's just exists somewhere in some cloud space (laughs) somewhere. It is a way that life happens and it is a very significant portion of people's lives. So it would be a mistake to just think, oh yeah, they're just messaging someone that's not real. Like that's a very real part of people's lives. So I wanted to put that in a book and kind of, you know, open it up and kind of talk about it and see the consequences of what it's like to live online and in the real world Mm -hmm. and how 
those things might be different, but they might be the same and they might impact each other in different ways. And is that something that have you seen uh, challenging you or your friends? And that, is that a kind of a worry for you? Like, what is your relationship now with all of that <laughs> as a 26 year old who's been living, you know, most of your life online? Yeah, I mean, I've definitely gone through different phases with social media. You know, when I was in college, there was very much a feeling of I have to be constantly online and contactable. I've got a phone in my hand. If someone messages me, hey, what's up? It'd be rude for me not to immediately drop everything and reply. That, towards the end of my college career, I was like, enough is enough. (laughs) I'm not going to do that. Um, But I was still posting quite a lot. And then during the pandemic, I kind of realized that it was a huge waste of time. You know, like everyone was still posting to the same degree and there was still content, but that content had no meaning anymore. Everyone was just posting about the lack of content. And that kind of made me reevaluate social media. And like, I'm still on it. I still find myself opening up Instagram when I've got nothing to do. Um, but I'm trying to kind of interrogate why. Um, I'm trying to, I guess, disentangle the parts of my life that I live for me and the part that I live for like content, you know? So like, I've been talking about this quite a lot. Um, but uh, when you go to brunch, right, you go to brunch and it's in a nice place that your friend has seen on Instagram and it looks great. And it's all, you know, there's plush velvet cushions and, you know, neon lights and things like that. You sit down, the menu looks really fancy, but the service isn't that good. And by the time the food arrives, it's okay. And, you know, you're having a stilted conversation, whatever. It's a four out of 10 experience. However, you take a photo of the brunch place and if you played a food and you get 200 likes of it on, on Instagram um, and you get all the dopamine hits of that and everything, And then suddenly your 4 out of 10 experience appears like a 10 out of 10 experience to everyone else around you. And those two experiences are stemming from the same place, but very different in consequence. Uh, And which one to you is more real? Like, which one are you looking for? Like, that's something that I'm kind of interrogating and trying to reassess in my own life. Because I would rather have a nice brunch, I think. (laughs) But it's very tempting to go for the likes, you know? Yeah, no, I think I think a lot of people listening will relate to that. And it does almost somehow make the thing better because you've styled it right and you've put it out there and people have approved. And so now your experience is enhanced. But really, was it? You know, it's it's kind of it's a very interesting. You do that so well in the book. I want to also talk about some of the people in the book, because there's a lot of not very nice people. A lot, <laughs> I think. <laughs> no, I, I really like Sophie and her friend Grace. There's a lovely friendship there at the, at the heart of this book. Um, but there's some horrible people like, uh, you know, uh, Finn, the guy that she's mad about and who just treats her terribly. Then there's his friend Pierce is horrible as well. And then there's another guy who we think is going to be nice, but turns out to be an asshole. I'm just going to say a complete another horrible <laughs> person. So I was wondering about that because, you know, I, I really enjoyed I just I felt reading the book that I was getting an absolute window and a glimpse into something that being a different age to you. I don't necessarily, I'm not, it's not in my kind of life experience, but I really felt like I understood and I was immersed in the world of, of these young people. But there's a lot of nastiness. And I just wondered where, why that is um, in the book, particularly. Um, yeah, someone wrote in a review that the real villain of my novel is men. <laughs> um, but uh, I think it's interesting because the thing that you always have to remember with this novel is that you are entirely inside Sophie's head. Like everything that she notices, everything that she fixates on and all the expectations she has are there and they're not necessarily objective. So she's very concerned with how people perceive her and how uh, other people, you know, how, how she perceives her and how other people perceive her perceiving them. Do you know what I mean? It's this kind of whole perception loop. Um, So I think the men in the book, and a lot of them are pretty horrible, but I also think they come across as horrible because Sophie ignores a lot of different things. You know, she, you know, her relationship with Finn, I think, you know, he is, I think, not as clever as she gives him credit for. Um, And that is a problem. I think she's constantly looking for meaning in all of the interactions and kind of, you know, taking any crumb that he gives her. But ultimately, he's just kind of there living his life. And that is kind of all read into. Um, And maybe he feels like he's been totally straight with her. And then with Rory as well, I think it never really worked in person, but it worked online. And she was really hoping that it would work in person. And so kind of ignoring a lot of maybe red flags and things like that. And then 
Pierce is just a prick. Can I say that on, on the yes. podcast? He's just a prick. We, we were able to swear on this podcast. <laughs> Great, Catherine. Great. Um, but yeah, that's he is just bad. Um, but um, for a lot of the other characters, I think, you know, Sophie's in a very vulnerable place and she is mm. opening herself up and allowing her to be vulnerable and essentially kind of wanting these people to take advantage of her, for lack of a better phrase. And then they do. And then there's fallout. And a lot of the book is her coming to terms with needing to have maybe more self-respect you know so I think I think reading between the lines and looking at some of the things the characters do and the bits that I've written in for things that you know Sophie can't explain away so in some of the messages or some of the dialogue pieces there are markers for them not being totally totally horrible but I think for Sophie's perspective they are. Yeah. Another thing I want to talk to you about, and it's got leads on from that all men are bastards, I suppose, <laughs> is the sex in the book, right? The sex in the book is either very... Dis- I, actually, I want to tell a bit more about Sophie to, to our listeners because she's this young woman, she's graduated. And um, there's one point where she talks about... Uh, I was interested that you mentioned ca- that the book refers to Catholic guilt because I would have thought all you lot wouldn't have any of that baggage. But it's interesting <laughs> no, that still there, you still clearly there. still do because there's a bit about that. But she's a young woman, she's graduated from college. She's in that horrible limbo where she doesn't know what she's going to do with her life. She's looking for jobs in maybe Dublin Zoo and a catering <laughs> company in Cavan. I loved that bit. It's so random. And she goes to job interviews that are just so soul destroying. All of that. Um, and she's, as you say, she's trying to find herself. She's also suffering from a really serious eating disorder as well, which is absolutely done brilliantly. I have to say, Catherine, I I, I mean, I couldn't believe how... Um, spot on it was I think actually just it just really read so true to me um and anyway she's going through all of that but the the men sort of thing and the wanting approval and the wanting validation from guys I I just found all that so um interesting because the sex as I say is either disappointing on the mild scale (laughs) or it's you know there's not much about her pleasure it's all about the men's pleasure and I did a piece recently for the Irish Times where I spoke to a lot of young people about sex and I I just found it so, um, well, depressing, but also illuminating. This idea that women, it seems to me, were not really engaged in sex as much as the men or as much as feminism has moved on and as much as we are kind of powerful and empowered as women, younger women still seemed to, this is only a small little sample that I spoke to, (laughs) to be more concerned with men's sexual pleasure than they were about their own. This was one of the things that came up all the time was about orgasms, whether women were orgasming or not. Anyway, I could talk about that for ages, (laughs) but it it just, your book sort of touches on all of those things. And also the other thing that people spoke to me about was the choking. The idea that this was a normal aspect of of young, sex among young people now, obviously influenced by porn. But um, I, I really think that's why your book's so important, actually, because all those things are laid out there that I think a lot of older people don't understand or don't know are actually the way things are carrying out. So that's a very long question. I'd love <laughs> to know why it was so important to you that these characters were, you know, you, you were showing that about these characters. Yeah, it's a very deep and complicated question. <laughs> Let's see if I can answer it. Um. Yeah, I think, you know, a large part of the book as well is, you know, kind of touched upon that like empowerment only goes so far in a vacuum, you know, um, and that's the thing, like my female characters, they are empowered and they talk a lot about feminism. We're not sure necessarily they, they know exactly what they're talking about, but that's fine, you know, and Sophie, you know, has a lot of strong thoughts and there was a, a point in it as well where, you know, she's kind of comparing herself to Cassie, who's kind of Finn is dating at the start. And then she stops herself and she goes, no, the only people who profit from that kind of thinking are men. So like, you know, I didn't want her to be a bitter woman or to be jealous in that kind of way. I wanted her to have this kind of emotional hole inside of her that she needed to fill. But at the same time, on the flip side, a lot of the book is then about, you know, we won't give any kind of spoilers or anything that ends up happening, I suppose. But, um, you know, women can talk the talk and men can talk the talk, but it's all about the kind of their actions, you know, and you kind of find out in the book that a lot of the men are kind of not particularly good feminists. So they've learned the language of social justice. They know how to disarm a woman, but ultimately they are not good. And they're kind of using that as to the same ends that someone who can't talk about feminism does, you know, to just get a woman in bed or whatever, you know, and there's an extent to which Sophie is kind of aware of this phenomenon, you know, throughout the book, but she doesn't necessarily want to call anyone out on it because she is again deeply deeply insecure and on the other flip side I think a large part of the book as well is 
Sophie kind of doing all the things that she kind of perceives her peers as doing that are kind of quote unquote normal that she kind of wants to be part of. So, you know, the kind of sexual relationships in the book, uh, so much of that nearly for her is going through the motions because she's craving a kind of intimacy that these men probably are never going to offer her anyway, you know? Um, So there's a large, it's it's a very complicated question, but I think the reason I wrote the book the way that I did was because I wanted to comment on softer misogynies, you know, things that are harder to pin down, harder to talk about. But then when you're sitting around a table with your friends drinking wine, everyone goes, oh yeah, that happened to me as well, you know? Um, And starting a conversation about that, because I think there's still so much more work to be done in those areas before all of these kind of things go away. Of course, there are much larger issues and things like that that we also need to do a lot more work on, but I didn't really feel qualified to write a book about any of those. So I just wanted to kind of point out the ways, you know, like... In the book, there's kind of a little whisper of a conversation of, well, this man is bad. Why didn't the other men tell us? Why they obviously must have known. They must have done this before. Why didn't they warn us? And that kind of divide in priorities, I guess, between the different characters and the things, you know, the protectiveness women feel for each other and maybe the things that men aren't aware that they should be doing to protect women. Mm. I mean, I I think it's great that you put that in. And I think that's the reason I wanted to do that article I did, because I feel like when you when you put those things out there, it allows for people to sit around and talk about it and say, do we really want to be doing this or why are we Mm. doing this? You know, because sometimes as younger people, we were doing things and not really they're not really thought through. And we're doing things like you say, because other people are doing them and the peer pressure is real and all of that. So. Again, I think that's a really brilliant part of the book. Um, and at one point, Sophie uh, talks about purgatory in the book and she said <laughs> purgatory is being in your 20s living in Ireland, basically, because everyone's living with their parents and can't start their lives. That is a huge part of this book, isn't it? And and the sort of anxiety and the, yeah, there's a lot of sadness and kind of worries. And it, it makes me feel really sad for your generation in one way, you know, because, but in another way, you've so much more than than I would have in my 20s. But that's also a very important part of the book, isn't it? To describe that anxiety. Uh, yes, definitely. Um, and it's funny because when I sent the book out, my agent sent it out to editors, a few got back and said, oh yeah, I really liked the book, but like, I can't believe all these people in their 20s are talking about owning a house. Like, surely they're talking about moving out. And I was like, no, like it's the specific home ownership problem because nobody can afford to rent in Dublin, you know, um, and it seems like it's just throwing money away to even attempt to rent. So that was kind of this funny thing that when I talked to all my friends, I was like, do you talk about wanting to own a house? They were like, yes, all the time. And people like, you know, like my, you know, cousin's boyfriend and friends of friends have been like, oh yeah, that is a huge want. But it seems like it's something that other people can't really identify with because it's not so much about freedom as a craving for stability. Um, and that is, I think, the underpinning of the book. You know, it's about, uh, as we just talked about, like things that are normal that we need to interrogate and prove are not normal. And it's about things that were once stable that have come entirely unstuck. And what does that mean for everyone? Um, so that's it. You know, I think a large part of, you know, what is different, you know, I, I don't, like I'm living in a pretty stable time period in terms of human history. Do you know, like I'm not engaged personally in war, which is really good. Um, And I think, you know, there's a a certain amount of privilege in that, obviously. Um, But I think how we view the kind of changes that are going on and the kind of instability is different and unique to maybe this generation, like having to be constantly plugged in, opening up Twitter and seeing, you know, dog meme, barbershop quartet, wildfires, war, and different barbershop quartet or whatever it is, you know, the way that we engage with those things and we're constantly aware of them and talking about them, I think is different. So that's why there's also like a lot of issues in the book because I think there's a kind of generalized anxiety of, oh God, what is happening and what is going to happen? Because, you know, the kind of jobs that existed 20 years ago don't exist anymore. The kind of stability, the kind of salaries, the kind of home ownership doesn't exist. And I think, not to say that it's all doom and gloom, because I think it's funny because a lot of people older than me have said, oh, this is a very sad book. And a lot of people my age have gone, oh, it's really funny. <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> No, it is. I have to say it is very funny. Sophie <laughs> has this, well, great um, sardonic kind of humour and it's often got these great one-liners. So there is a lot of <laughs>, laughs, I, I have to say in it. Um, tell me a bit about yourself, though, because you've always wanted to be a writer from a very young age. 
yes, I mean, it's the one thing that I think I've always been doing. And then I kind of got lost in the middle somewhere around like college and with the thinking of a career kind of thing. Um, but I've always wanted, I was, I wrote two novels when I was a teenager. What? One was kind of a uh, vampire novel, kind of a, a, um, Dublin reimagining of Buffy and kind of hate right back to Twilight. I was like, no, I'm going to do vampires better. Um, and so that, and that, I, I worked on that for like three years when I was a teenager and it was like a hundred thousand words. <laughs> um, and then I did another like 50,000 words one, which was basically just, what if Catherine Prasivka wrote The Hunger Games as a 17-year-old? Um, and yeah, and then I did English in college, obviously. And then I thought I was going to change career, maybe do a master's in something else. Maybe, I don't, I don't, I don't know what I thought I was going to do. Um, but then I read the line description of my master's in fantasy in Glasgow. Like I read just like one sentence and I was like, oh, it's that. That's I, nothing else. Nothing else would do. I'm going to do that. And then I thought I was going to, I said, get a real job, find myself, get some life experience and write a novel. And then the pandemic happened. So I was like, well, no life experience, better just write the novel, I guess. (laughs) And that's where we are. I think now is a good time to bring in the fact that your brother's wife is quite a very famous (laughs) writer. (laughs) And I I was thinking about this and the fact that your sister-in-law is Sally Rooney, like, I you, I think you're an incredible person because if that was me, I don't know, I'd either have been paralysed into not doing anything because of the huge success or I'd be like, oh, please help me and is this any good? You know, and you didn't do e- either of those things. You weren't paralysed. You sat down and you wrote your book even while, you know, someone in, close in your family is achieving these incredible heights. <laughs> and also you did something that I think is amazing. You never told her you were you were doing this. So can if you don't mind talking about it, because I know everyone wants to ask you. I was thinking, will I ask her about Sally Rooney or will I not? And I thought, well, I better ask her. But if you don't mind, because I do think it's interesting. Your strategy around it was very interesting. Yeah, you know, it's kind of funny because this is a life path that I feel that I've always been on, you know, apart from knowing Sally. You know, I'd already decided I wanted to do English at the point at which my brother brought his girlfriend home and said, it's my girlfriend who's doing English in Trinity. And I was like, oh, I'm going to do that. You know, <laughs> so like it's that it's we're completely separate. And I think our approaches to literature are completely separate. Um, but it's hard, I think, because I, I mean, watching her succeed was incredibly inspirational, I think. You know, she did it and I was like, well, maybe this is a thing people can do. Um, but at the same time, it's difficult kind of watching other young Irish writers get published. And it's like the next Sally Rooney, the new Sally Rooney. This book is not as good as Sally Rooney. This book <laughs> might be better than Sally Rooney. You know, it's it's kind of a weird frame. Um, so I always knew, I was like, well, I want to write a book. I think, you know, I, I'm not sure this book would have been the first book that I would put out in the world if not for the pandemic, you know, like I think this was the book that I felt I had to write during the pandemic because I I didn't have any other life experience. I thought, okay, well, it's a bit unfortunate that it's going to be about a young Irish woman just graduating college. Um, <laughs> but then I was like, well, I could set it elsewhere. I could set it in Glasgow where I lived, but that didn't seem true to me or the story that I wanted to tell. So from a marketing perspective, it might have been easier if I was like, here's my high fantasy novel about elves. <laughs> but um, I didn't feel during the pandemic I could have written that. Um, but I just knew, I was like, I'm bringing this out. You know, there were deliberate choices I made with the manuscript. Like there was like one or two stray references to Trinity. I was like, cut that out, get rid of, you know, as much as possible. And then at the point where I finished the manuscript, I was like, okay, well, what will I do? Who will I send it to? And I ended up sending it to like my second cousin who had, you know, had worked in the literary world in Ireland, just looking for like advice on what to do, like finish book, what now? <laughs> like nobody kind of tells you. Um, and then she loved it. And then I sent it to my agent and then she loved it. And it just started kind of snowballing. So at the time where it might've made sense to send it to Sally, I already kind of had a book deal. <laughs> um, so it kind of, you know, it was about six months between sending it to like the first person and kind of signing with Canon Gate. So um, I, it was, she was like, why didn't you ask me anything? I was like, well, I never had a, a moment to. Um, but anyway, it's, it's funny talking about it now. Uh, Cause I think even I did everything I possibly could to keep it as far away from her as possible. But I think people are obviously still curious and there are still headlines but I kind of relish the day when I get my own headline, subheading and first paragraph without a mention of Sally, you know, that, that'll be the, the good day. Yeah, well, I'm sure that's not far away. I mean, I think I think you are just going to forge this path completely on your own. But I just I do think it's admirable and I think it's kind of cool because it allowed you at this point to be able to say, I think you said in an interview, hand on heart, 
you know, you know that it had nothing to do with her because you just didn't let her get in, you know, involved. <laughs> so, you know what I mean? It's, it was a it was a very clever thing to do. And um, you are your own writer and you'll be. And I mean, I hope you do write that book about elves because I'd read it. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe I'd book three or four. You know, I'm still I'm building up to the high fantasy world building. I have we won't get into it at all. I've got so many thoughts about fantasy and how it should be constructed apart from tropes that carry bad things with them which is very difficult to write so uh give me like 10 years <laughs> so what has the feedback been like for the book I mean you're going through this massive publicity drive now uh you're having to talk and say the same things in interviews be asked the same things over and over again um actually Sally talks about that really well in or not you know her character in Beautiful World Where Are You I love that bit of the book where she talks about that but it's a kind of relentless thing it's very exhausting and draining but are you enjoying this is it is it amazing to have the book out there your first one it is bizarre, you know, and I haven't had to repeat myself too much. I have used that brunch anecdote before, but <laughs> I use that in conversation anyway. Um, sometimes I change it up for like, you know, a coffee. Um, yeah. But uh, but there is so much in the book, you know, that I'm lucky that I can kind of just like pick and choose different things to talk about. Um, and overall, it's kind of been amazing, you know, like I can't really conceptualize my book as anything bigger than it is which is a book of nearly 300 pages sitting in my hand and so when individuals reach out and they say I really liked your book that was great but then when again there are kind of headlines and people are talking about it in trends and you know how well does she differentiate herself from all of these Irish women that we've decided are the same you know like those kind of things uh I'm like huh it's just a little book (laughs) you know I kind of can't really understand you know or it was after the launch and everything in Hodges Vegas, it was like their best-selling book of the last week. So it was like on the top shelf. And I walked in and I was like, who wrote that book? What's that doing there? Do you know, this is just a little book in my hand, you know, um, which I honestly think is probably healthier than getting involved in any of the other kind of stuff. Oh, definitely. And I mean, the other thing I haven't mentioned, we haven't mentioned the climate, obviously a huge thing through it and part of the anxiety. Uh, it's, and again, I think the crack sort of is very represented there in a way. What the hell is going on in the sky? What's happening to <laughs> us? Um, but also family. Uh, Sophie has a twin sister, Hannah, who's also not a very nice person. <laughs> I call her a monster. I wrote down <laughs> Hannah, monster. Um, and, uh, you know, she has she has childhood trauma and she's had difficult relations in her family very much feels left out and all of that uh i'm interested just in that aspect of it what what was that drew, drew you to that kind of fractured um sense in a family um I, I suppose it wasn't so much about the anything to do with like family dynamics but more about the position that i wanted to put sophie in to best kind of explore the themes um and yeah with hannah um Originally, she was the character who's going to come back from the dead uh, in, the, in the very first draft, and it was too complicated. Um, but, you know, because I've given Sophie such a specific perspective on the world around her, like a lot of the stuff, again, I think you can easily read as she's not being excluded. She is just isolating herself, you know, and that is a huge point in the novel, you know, and there are things about Hannah. I mean, I do think Hannah is emotionally abusive and not a very good sister, but there are moments when it could be read as her genuinely trying to reach out or there's moments when her friends talk to Sophie and they say like, oh, Hannah says you're really funny or something. And she goes, what? You know, like, no, that's different. You know, so I don't think she has the full perspective on her sister. And I think probably it's slightly more of a two way street than she kind of portrays. Um, But because of her totally warped perspective, I think, you know, she is so concerned with how people perceive her and she thinks everyone in her family treats her like a child and treats her like she was when she was like 13 so then that idea kind of gets into her head and then she acts like she's 13 around them Mm. at the same time you know it's just kind of like self-perpetuating loop um yeah and that was it you know I kind of wanted to make her unstable and to have a contrasting figure so between Sophie and Hannah this kind of aspirational thing of Hannah is everything Sophie wishes she could be therefore she's demonic she's everything she does is awful you know she goes for a run oh my god what a bitch you know uh, all that kind of stuff you know uh and then to have a contrast between Hannah and Grace Sophie's friend who 
you know, Sophie kind of loves, kind of hates, kind of wishes she could be, is kind of constantly trying to replicate. But I actually think Hannah and Grace are a lot more similar than Sophie would like. It's just that Grace is more accessible and is willing to give her kind of a more reciprocal relationship. So there's this little kind of triangle going on between them. Well, speaking of family, your mum put the cover of the um, Irish, (laughs) uh, the Sunday Times on the wall in a frame. She's obviously very proud. Is it really a lovely thing for your whole family? Like... Yeah, Your brother yeah, is yeah. married to a really successful author. Now his sister, he must feel a bit like, I better get a book out. <laughs> Another one, yeah. Uh, it was, um, yeah, it was very funny. You know, at the launch, there were cousins upon cousins upon cousins, you know, like that I, you know, have met, haven't met in 10 years. And they were like, finally a blood relative, <laughs> you know. Um, no, it's it's been amazing. And I think you know, everyone around me has been able to enjoy it a lot more than me. Because for me, obviously, there's the anticipation at any moment some things could go horribly wrong. But for everyone else, they're like, that's amazing. Wow. You know, uh, my dad said the day that I got the book deal was the proudest moment of his life. Now, I do have two brothers and we also were all born on days of his life. So like this is like a big, a big moment. Um, and my mom is just, she can't really believe it. You know, um, she said... I can write whatever I want about family or a mother figure so long as I make money from it. She's like, that's fine. You know, she's like, whatever. And when she kind of comes up in interviews like this, you know, like I'll quote something that she said and she'll be, you know, in a line. She'll go, hmm, yeah, I don't really know how the mother character came across in this this, um, extract or whatever. Uh, But no, like everyone's been tremendously supportive and great. And I'm just kind of here like, I don't know what's going on. It's great. And listen, um, what about your next book? What's happening? Well, I quite like being a writer. I think it's a really good job. So I would (laughs) like it to continue to be my job. Um, I am working on something. I found it very difficult after my first book was kind of not quite finished, but kind of submitted and going through edits. I was like, well, that was great just write another one. That was, that was just, just do another book. Like, why not? Um, and the answer is it's hard. <laughs> um, I found, especially during the last kind of tale, the end of the pandemic, again, I wasn't experiencing, experiencing anything new any day, you know, so there was nothing to generate any new thought. And I kind of struggled with that. I was writing things. It was bad, <laughs> you know, like it was, the prose was fine, but there wasn't like a central heart. Like I wasn't saying anything because I didn't have anything to say. And then, once things kind of started opening up again, I started to be able to like think of things. And it took me a while because I'm very interested in form, you know, using the novel to the full extent of the novel. That's why Sophie doesn't speak in the book. I was like, that's something I can do in a novel and pretty much nowhere else. So let's see how that plays out. So I'm interested in that and kind of central tones and ideas and, and dynamics. And so I finally have thought of one. <laughs> I finally thought of something that I'm happy with. I won't really say anything about it because it will definitely change as I edit and redraft and everything. But um, I'm it's exploring similar themes that I'm interested in, but hopefully in a new way. That sounds very exciting. And <laughs> is there any chance that this brilliant, brilliant book, None of This is Serious, uh, is going to be made into a TV thing or a movie or anything? Well, that's the trend, isn't it? That's, that is. <laughs> that's, I mean, we kind of know that's uh, what happens. <laughs> since uh, normal people went big, um, but... Look, I don't want to jinx anything. Uh, I, would be, I would be delighted. I'm very interested, as I said, in, in form and in how you could take my book, which I kind of, I think I kind of snookered myself because I was like, oh yeah, write a novel that's only a novel. And now when I'm thinking how one would adapt a character who doesn't speak out loud, difficult. Um, <laughs> but I'd be interested, like I'd be very much open to Sophie speaking if there were kind of cinematic tips and tricks that I don't know yet that could kind of replicate the feeling of kind of the claustrophobia of it. Um, but we'll see. Well, you know. I have to say, I was actually talking to Lenny Abrahamson last night, who obviously did Normal People. And <laughs> and one thing I want to talk to you about just before we go is Taylor Swift, because <laughs> I'm a massive Taylor Swift fan and I know you are as well. And Lenny told me a story last night of them hanging out together and I was absolutely, I couldn't even barely listen yeah. to him. I was so upset. But I loved the, the idea of you in the pandemic, listening to folklore and the albums that Taylor put out during Taylor do you see she's my best friend Taylor (laughs) uh, that Taylor put out during the pandemic and you being inspired by her work ethic and her kind of ability in that time to just produce something so extraordinary so before you go tell us about your Taylor love because I'm always I love to hear other people who are as passionate about Um, her as I am yeah where to begin you know I've always been a fan ever since like love story made its way to Ireland you know however it got here um and I definitely think at times in my life I would have been like ashamed to say Taylor Swift is my favorite musician because there's a certain way that we talk about 
art created by women for women, you know, and like I I I don't idolize any celebrity necessarily, um, but I really enjoy everything that she puts out. I think she puts her heart and soul into it like she really does and therefore it's like relatable you know I think there are songs that you know maybe not the best songs in the whole world but she wrote them when she was 16 and I listen to and I go that is exactly how I felt when I was 16 and that I definitely felt very strongly about when I was writing my novel I was like well be as emotionally honest as possible write things that are true that people experience not things that you might expect to read in a novel you know and that's why so much of the stuff kind of came out that way I was trying to to not replicate but you know to to follow the kind of path of what is an authentic experience that a woman has and I very much what I kind of learned from her music is uh and from other sources not just Taylor Swift like I think yeah I'm really inspired by Van Bolan's poetry as well and she does the same thing where she writes about events in her life with such a specificity that you're able to contrast your own experience with it and say oh, you felt that way, I felt slightly different, but it still evokes a feeling in you. Whereas if you were more general, maybe you wouldn't spark any feeling at all. So like that, I definitely wanted to kind of bring into my own work. Uh, And yeah, she got me through the pandemic. I absolutely (laughs) think you did. And that's the thing about this book. When I was reading it, there was so many times I just went, I had to stop and go, exactly. I totally understand that. It's amazing. And like there's one line where she's talking to someone about um, food and her issues with food. And she says, I can't explain to him that eating is not about being hungry or full. And it's such a simple sentence but there's so many things like that Catherine that you've put in the book that I just really appreciated and really kind of I'm in you know very admire about the way that you uh, write about things and it's that emotional honesty which is her, Taylor's superpower it's your superpower yeah. too as well <laughs> and I think you, you you quote her as saying um she wanted a, a thin skin and a sharper pen and yeah. it's a really good uh, mantra for for any writer I think to be able to get in touch with those um, um, really deep emotions and articulate them so well. So I think you did it in the book and uh, congratulations. I can't wait to see what your next one is going to be and to watch the movie of this one because I think it's <laughs> Well, look, we'll, don't jinx it. We'll just see what happens. Maybe you know? Lenny, I, maybe we'll Lenny will come on about board. <laughs> but everyone's like, oh, what do you think is going to happen next? And I'm like, you know, I got on this roller coaster about a year and a half ago, two years ago, and it hasn't stopped moving and I have no idea what's going on. I'm buckled in like everybody else, you know. <laughs> Well, it was absolute <laughs> pleasure to talk to you and thank you very much and best of luck with everything else that you're doing. Oh, thanks so much. Thanks for having me and for asking such good questions. You know. <laughs> that was Catherine Prasivka there and I highly recommend her book, None of This is Serious. As you can probably gather, I really, really liked it. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Now, as you know, we don't often have men on this podcast, but lately we've been wanting to have Richie Sadlier on for a while. He's a former footballer and he's a soccer pundit, but it's his work as a psychotherapist that we're really interested in. He works mainly with adolescent boys and his insights on that are really important. Following his award-winning autobiography, Recovering, he has written a second book called Let's Talk and it's a guide to help teenage boys navigate the choppy waters of adolescence. It's a modern guide to sex, porn, relationships, consent 
and intimacy. And it's written especially for boys in secondary school. And it's a sensitive, considered guide to the often complicated landscape of sex. And, you know, in this country, we don't talk about sex properly and the sex education is really, really poor. So we thought you'd be very interested in this because I certainly believe that by educating boys properly about this stuff, about consent, about sexuality and all of those things, it's going to have positive repercussions for everybody, for women and for girls. So I think he's doing some very good work here. And here is my chat with Richie Sadlier. Richie, I just want to say thanks very much, first of all, for writing this book, because I think these are massively important conversations that we need to be having and young boys need to be having. But I want to know why you decided to write it and why it's important. I think when you work with young people, as I do, I, I I'm work as a psychotherapist and I've been doing lots and lots of skills over, uh, talks and skills over the years. I just think it's it, it's well worth us spending our time, us being adults, to try and come up with new and creative and different ways to support them. Um, probably very few of us, I'll speak from my own experience, can refer back to our teenage years um, with lots of memories of open, non-judgmental, informative, useful conversations with adults about about sex and sexuality and behaviour and relationships and how to break up. And I, I, I just think it would be really worthwhile if the youngsters today got that. And I think there's a lot, lots, there's lots different in, in, in today's landscape that wasn't an issue when I was a teenager. There are all the obvious ones, phones, camera phones, dating apps, sexting, online porn. So um, I just figured it'd be worthwhile putting a lot of it in a book because this is a tricky area to talk about, um, particularly with teenagers who are embarrassed by everything, but really curious and, and eager to learn about everything. And Richie, I suppose from the women's podcast perspective, the reason I think we're so delighted about it is because often, and we talk about this stuff all the time, about how women can be safe and protect themselves and, you know, how women can deal with toxic masculinity and male violence against women and all these things. And I mean, I know your book isn't particularly about that, but what I what I feel has been lacking is... Um, people talking to young boys and young men about what they can be and the types of men and boys they can be. And that's kind of like, in a way, we've let them down, I think, for a long time. We haven't been speaking to them, as you say, in a very frank way. And I think these conversations, now that they're happening, are going to be game-changing in terms of how men and boys are going to be in the world, which is going to have a huge positive effect, I think, for everybody. And that's why I particularly think what you've done is great. I think one of the things I... I I hope people aren't taking from lots of the conversations I've had because this is a book aimed at lads and I'm going to talk about why I really believe it's useful to support lads as well. I hope that God people don't think, I don't think girls are also really worthy of support and proper education and that we really need to listen to girls and understand the world in which they're in. 15-year-old girl is dealing with different things than a 15-year-old girl will have to deal with 20 years ago of all the stuff I just mentioned. So like... A lot of the stuff that's in this book is really applicable to girls too and girls need to know about it. Um, but I suppose I honed in on lads just because I'm just really familiar with the world in which they're in. Um, not just from my own experience 25 years ago, whatever it was, but just from working predominantly with them. The majority of my young clients are male um, and and most of the schools I went to are all male schools. So... I do think a lot of the discussions recently over the last few years, you've been part of them, you've been you've been great in loads of them and, and loads of people are identifying behaviours which we got, oh my God, is this a trend? Is this a pattern? Is this stuff we have to become accustomed to? Is this becoming normal? We all know the ones I'm talking about, but I, I feel like they're really useful conversations and it's great that we can speak openly and really emphatically about how um, unacceptable lots of different things are. But I think... What I really like when you ever talk about a problem is when you shift to discussing the possible solutions um, and you go, right, OK, there's loads of parts of culture that we're not happy about. But is there something we can do that can meaningfully change it, even tiny step at a time? Um, and I just made something like this has, hasn't been done. It's a really common sense. Like there's, no, there's nothing particularly innovative or original about it. it it's just it's just giving young people information that would actually serve them well Um I'm sure I could talk to you for hours about the stuff that you wish you'd have been told in your teenage life, which would have served you well in your adult relationships, right? And you're not a teenage boy. This isn't unique to teenage boys, but I think it's just better to give them information and to 
kind of help them in that process that is really underway with everyone who's 15 and 16, boys and girls, is you're, you're trying to work out who you are. You're also trying to work out a set of behaviours and thoughts and expressions that are going to work for you in this new, exciting teenage landscape. The stuff that you did a few years ago was childish, but it was fine because you were a child. It's not going to work anymore. So we have to help them kind of tease out how they're going to present themselves in this new, exciting world that they're now in. So I just want to read out the cover because the cover is brilliant. It's just a, a load of text that says, let's talk about sex and relationships, about dating, sexting, drinking and breakups and all the things you might be seeing in porn. Let's talk about pleasure, which I love that you want that you talk about pleasure in this book. So important. Pleasure and fun, condoms and safety and all the ways to understand consent. Let's talk about the stuff you want to talk about, the stuff you want to understand. Let's not do what previous generations of Irish people did. Let's actually talk about this stuff. You won't get everything right, nor will your partners for that matter but you'll have a far better chance of positive experiences if you've read talked and learned about these things in advance I mean it's just a really beautiful message to put out there and you say in the introduction that this you this kind of book couldn't have been published even 10 20 years ago it's interesting that that we're in a place now where we can put these things out yeah I I think it's great that we can um a book like this just would not have been published when I was a teenager probably go back 10 15 years there might have been a bit of resistance to it maybe publishers wouldn't have been supportive of of the idea and maybe parents more importantly wouldn't have maybe loved the idea of 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 buying a book or handing it to a teenager which like acknowledged the world of porn or acknowledged the usefulness of knowing how to put on a condom or acknowledged that uh, like really teasing out with a young person how to effectively communicate consent. Like previous generations of adults or parents might have balked at that. But I think for lots and lots of different reasons, I think we're now at a stage where we're we're, we're kind of shifting our approach a little bit. And we think, do you know what? They're 15 or 16. They're either in a world or entering a world where all of the stuff that you just read out is going to be a feature in their lives. Like any part of education, you, you, you take the bits you, you, that are useful to you and you leave the rest. But it's, it, it, I deliberately, you mentioned pleasure there. Like, I don't remember anyone ever in my life. Now, I had very limited sex education, if you can call it that. It was just told kind of what went where in biology yeah. class. And that was it for junior search. So there's no teasing out of like, what's, how do you, how do you resolve conflict in a relationship? When do you know you should break up or when do you know you should work on things? And how do you, all that stuff. But no one ever told me it was meant to be pleasurable and that sex is meant to be fun. And like, there's something the most like amazing experiences you can have in your life will be with your partner. And some of the most difficult, distressing, like challenging, upsetting, heartbreaking experiences also. But the pleasure bit, that was really deliberate, put that in, because I think that's a message that's really worth repeating. Because a lot of our discussions about sex, particularly discussions about consent, particularly in the media and podcasts, are on the back of an allegation or evidence of wrongdoing, where someone is really distressed and has been hurt or wronged. And so the, the conversation is framed in terms of what's right and wrong, what's illegal and, and, and not, and, and who's the bad guy and, and, and what should be done, where... I think it's, a, it's just a better approach to have these conversations before a crime has been alleged to have taken place. Um, and with this age group, like they're all mad to learn. Every teenager like wants to know about this world. It's an exciting new world that no one has talked to them about, but they're having experiences in this area. So I think it's, it's, just, it's, it's just a better approach to put something else like this out rather than just pretend that none of them like sex. <laughs> well, we've mentioned it a little bit already, and it is a big part of the book, pornography, because I think I mean, it comes up on the, this podcast a lot. And speaking to younger people recently for an article, young women particularly, it's so interesting to me how pornography has informed and influences sexual behavior uh, at the moment. And that's not going to change, perhaps. So I think it's so important that you talk about it. And, it, and it's this warped view of sex that, that is giving many young men through no fault of their own, they're seeing things and thinking that's what uh, women will want. And particularly I'm talking about the choking and any kind of mm. violence in sex that seems to be being normalized. So I'm just wondering what you think about that or whether is it something that's inevitable? Is Are we are we going to be able to change that by having these conversations with young men? I, I suppose the first thing to do is to 
do what you did just to acknowledge the, the really common sense kind of link between a young person's only access to sex, really, in how it's illustrated or depicted or performed or whatever word you want to use, is on online porn. Because it's not appropriate to show a young person sex or to demonstrate sex in front of them and loads of people are uncomfortable having any kind of graphic or Ill explicit discussions about what sex can entail. So if you want to learn about it, it's really like it's, a, it's an obvious place to go. But what porn won't teach a young person is the, the, what me and you might know because we've loads of real life experiences and we can understand the law and we've, our brains can work in a way that a 15 year old can't. Um, we know the difference between a sex scene and a crime scene. And we know the difference between consensual acts between two adults and a scene where someone's a victim and someone's a perpetrator. And, and a, a porn scene won't, for a young, impressionable mind that's eager to learn, there, there won't be any text at the bottom of the screen you know, differentiating the two for the young person. So I think it's really important. And this also applies to girls because it's not just young lads who are interested in learning about sex and who watch porn and are excited and aroused and, and curious by sex and, and, and that's where they go to porn. It, it's... It should be a concern to people who have the welfare of young people in mind to realise that porn is a primary sex educator for a lot of them, boys and girls. So I think it's worth intervening in that potential learning process by saying, like, porn is what it is. It's available. It's going nowhere. It's fine that you're excited by sex. It's appropriate at your age to be excited and curious by sex. But if you were to learn purely about sex from, just from porn, there's loads you're not going to know. And actually, if you take on some messages, you're being really let down. Porn will stitch you up. And the thing is, I mean, I was interested in what you said earlier about sex um, and the way we're talked about it in terms of pleasure and fun. I don't think nowadays, even in 2022, that that's something that comes into sex education. So I'm curious about your own thoughts on sex education in Ireland and what needs to change and whether it will change. And is the church being involved in schools? Is that a, a big barrier to that change? I suppose they're really broad questions. One of the things that is, I don't know how much of an issue this is in other countries, but in this country, I think there's a line in, in the, uh, the the curriculum or, or the legislation in this area, I'm not sure what word to use, is that the ethos of the school in question must be respected, which I think is just a get-out clause for any school to pick and choose what they would like the students in their school to learn. So we have a scenario in this in, in this country at the moment that, whatever, pick any other topic, maths, history, geography, whatever, like it doesn't matter what school you go to, you'll be taught the same thing. But when it comes to relationships and sex education, the same doesn't apply. And, and I just don't think that's a workable situation. It just makes no sense. Now, obviously, you have to factor in there's, personal considerations or cultural or religious or family considerations. I don't want to sound like I'm trampling over all of those things, but we're either serious about young people knowing about this stuff or we're serious about helping young people in ways we know will benefit them or we're not. And, and shying away in a classroom situation from explaining how a condom should be used or why it should be used or explaining what your options are if there's a crisis pregnancy or explaining how you might tease out you know, some of the maybe distressing internal questions you might have about your orientation at various points of your adolescence. They will help the development of young people in much better ways than staying away from discussing safe sex because sex should only be, happen inside a marriage between a man and a woman for the purposes of, you know, I'm exaggerating that, that that's the opposite approach. But um, I, I do think we could get better at it in this country Um but rather than wait around, I think this is what I, I get asked that question loads. You're like, Who, whose fault is it that we're so bad at this? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, we, is it a political party? Is it the church? Is it is it is it us? Is it parents or whatever? Is it being Irish? And I kind of go rather than spend too much of my conversations talking about like what's the problem and who's to blame. It's going well. What little steps could we take to improve the situation? Mm -hmm. And if there are, what would those steps be? And that was kind of the motive behind this. I just thought. It's really tricky to talk about. Everyone's leaving it to each other. 
schools leave it to parents, parents leave it to schools, mum leaves it to dad, vice versa. And mm. it's just it's just tricky to discuss. So a, a book can kind of help a young person learn, but also save them having the really potentially shaming or exposing or awkward or embarrassing one-on-one conversations mm. with an adult who's equally awkward about it. Mm. It can help kick things off. Yeah, there's loads of women listening I know who'll be thinking, is should I get this for my 15 or 16-year-old son? So, Richie, tell them why they should and tell them why it's important that if, you know, because it's not like, it's not a book for parents. It really is a book for those young young people. So what what are you hoping that they'll get from it, all these boys around the country? I, I think in, in, in the one hand, I suppose the most simplistic thing is to say access to information which is useful and relevant and reliable around lots of different areas of sex and relationships. But also it, it kind of helps them to tease out um, the appropriate way to behave for themselves. There's no one size fits all answer to that because we're all different and we all look for different things in partners and we bring different things to relationships ourselves. But young people are, by nature of being an adolescent, they're trying on loads of different hats. They're trying different ways to express their uh, their opinions, their, their their appearance, their every element of them. They're trying to work out who they are. And I think a book like this can help them in this area of their life to work out who they are and who they want to be and, and, and what do boundaries look like for them. This is an area we tend not to discuss with lads. Like we, we, we think that sex education for men and young boys is aimed at protecting the the, the, the rights and the, the bodies of women. And, and I think that's a very kind of narrow, that's kind of an unfair way to frame this. It, it's kind of about promoting healthy, respectful, fun, pleasurable interactions between young lads and whoever their partners may be, whether their partners are male or female. So I think it's, it's, it's really useful. Like there's really common sense stuff. There's, 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 I don't think there's anything in this. The publishers will probably hate me for saying things like this. There's, <laughs> there's nothing really in this which is, which you go, oh my God, I like, it, it's just the stuff that they want to know about, the stuff that us adults know you need to know about. Um, and it's also kind of just, kind of taking account of the fact that it's hard to get this kind of stuff anywhere that's reliable. But I also, one of the first things I did with the, the group, of, I, I was given a load of copies by the publishers a week or two before I came out. I gave it to my niece. Like she's one of the most important people in my life. She's 15 and I gave it to her because I thought this is stuff that will be insightful for you, but also empowering for you as well, because this is an area of her life which is emerging and developing as well. So even though it's aimed at boys, um, people could give it to their daughters as well. I have been. Yeah, I've been giving it to, 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 to young girls that I know because... Again, it would be great if someone in, in X amount of months a year were sitting there going, this is something for girls too. I've just written this book. for Like, come on, someone should do that too. And, and Richie, one of the really great, uh, very powerful parts of the book is the kind of testimonies from people, young men that you've worked with, because your job as a psychotherapist and everything with adolescents is so important. Um, how valuable were those encounters to informing what you wrote about here? Like they were so significant because I think sometimes we can, I'll speak for myself here, because it's been so long since I was 15 or 16, you can kind of forget exactly what it was like. Um, so when young people now talk about the decisions they've made or, or the dilemmas they faced or the regrets that they have, or the way I framed it in the book was it just to share the lessons that they learned. Because we're, we're, we're devils in this country, like well, like I said a moment ago, we'll have a conversation about stuff like this on the back of somebody doing something wrong or someone being hurt. So rather than wait until people have those experiences themselves, I, I shared the, the lessons learned by the young people I worked with, and um, particularly lads who were kind of 17 or 18, because when you're 15 or 16, the lives of people in their 40s or 30s kind of are a bit distant. They're, they're a bit too hard to connect with. But when you're 15 or 16, you really want to know about life of 17 and 18 year olds because you're about to step into it and you want to be ready. So I, I, I deliberately shared the experiences of lads around that age because that's what lads this age really want to know more about. Well, I think it's going to be changing a lot of, in a positive way for people. And I think it's going to start a load of different conversations. And I really, I hope it gets into all the school libraries. I hope everybody gets to read. So far, what's the feedback been? 
it's been great, to be honest. Like, before it came out, I was... Everyone just loved the idea of it. Um, and and I'm, I've kind of got one of those Irish minds which is really resistant to compliments and out of this imposter syndrome. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, you like the idea, but no one of you have read it. Like, you're, you're literally judging the book by its cover here. So <laughs> I, I kind of just dismissed all the praise. But... Um, the sales have been really good and all the private messages I've got have been really positive um, and chats like this have gone well. N- n- no one has kind of pulled me up about what I put in or what I left out or the approach I've taken. So um, what I'm really keen is, like these conversations are great, but what I'm really keen for, and I, I, it might be weeks or months before I, I hear, it's just to see that this lead to any kind of discussions within a sitting room that just wouldn't have happened otherwise. And and that's really the aim. So it's, it's not measurable stuff. It's not terms in terms of sales or anything like that. It's just will it have played a meaningful role in just in just helping or, or supporting a young person with whatever it is they felt they needed. I think it's going to do that because these are uncomfortable things, things that we're not very comfortable talking about. But what you've done and the tone of the book, the content throughout, it makes it very accessible and ordinary and normal. And it doesn't, you know, sensationalize anything. So I think that's the real um, triumph of it in a way. It's, it is common sense. It is sensible and, and normal and it's empowering for young boys. And I think you're right, young girls, too. So congratulations. And I I hope we do hear more of that conversations filtering through and from from the young people who you've aimed it at. Any final words before we go? No, thanks a lot. It, it's um, yeah, I suppose I, I'm in the very early stages here. It's only came out a week ago, and I, I think in the next week or so I, I'll stop having conversations. Maybe I won't. Maybe I'll be talking about this for ages. But I, I I have this idea in my head that I'll just do a week or two of conversations, and then the book will just do the work itself. Um, and, and I'd love if that was the case, that it just kind of quietly, like away from social media, away from public eye, that just somebody somewhere is going to sit in a room on their own and they can they can read certain sections and reread certain pages. Um, and no one needs to know that they're the pages that they really needed to focus in on. But the fact that they were able to read it was of some help. Yeah, that's brilliant. It's been great talking to you, Richie, and thanks for all the work you do. And I... Maybe you'll write another one for young girls as well at some point. Who knows? Thanks a lot, Roisin. That's all we have time for. Thanks very much to Richie Sadir. Thanks very much to Catherine Pastifka as well. Uh, Two very interesting books, very different books that are out at the moment that I think you'll find interesting. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, and by Jennifer Ryan and Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. That's it from me. Mind yourselves. And I will talk to you next time. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.